What a wonderful song to sing just before we begin our study of 1 Peter as we are learning about how we are elect exiles and how to live in this world for the glory of God to finish a song like that that reflects on our pilgrimage and those words, mine are the keys to Zion City where with the King I'll walk. Um, Fantastic. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 this morning as the climax to a passage that we began to study two weeks ago. A passage that reminds us as believers about the bliss of being born again. And if you recall, this is at first glance a rather surprising way for Peter to begin this letter, especially when you consider the audience to whom he is writing. You see, Peter was writing to a group of believers in the early church who were being scattered due to persecution throughout the regions of modern-day Turkey. These were people who had committed their lives in faith to Christ's saving sovereignty, and as a result, as a direct result, they were losing their jobs, their homes, their communities, their families, and in a few short years, even their lives. And by the way, I want to remind you that we're not so distant from this type of audience. Things haven't changed. We live in a culture that supposedly values speaking out on behalf of the marginalized and oppressed. That's wonderful. I can't wait till they get around speaking out for Christians. Because Christians are indisputably the most persecuted people group on the planet. We often forget this because of our sheltered American experience, but last year alone, according to the lowest of estimates, nearly 5,600 Christians were murdered, another 6,000 were imprisoned, and another 4,000 were kidnapped for their faith, with over 5,000 churches targeted and burned to the ground in one year alone because of their faith. That's according to the lowest of estimates. According to another study completed in 2010, so even more than 10 years ago, the 20th century has produced double the amount of Christian martyrs than all the previous 19 centuries put together. That's why I say that nothing has changed. Persecution, losing your jobs, homes, freedoms, communities, families, and lives has been the consistent experience of those who follow after Jesus Christ for salvation from the early church on into today. And these fledgling believers in 1 Peter were struggling, just as we often do, with understanding how to process all this animosity and hatred and rejection that they were facing from the world, and how to live through it for the honor and the glory of Christ. And so Peter writes this letter to them, and the very first thing he tells these suffering believers, if you recall, is to bless God. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our hardships, we as followers of Christ are to bless God. Bless God for what? For the greatest blessing that God has ever given us. The very blessing that we often overlook. The blessing of being born again. As Peter reminds us in verse 3, God has caused us to be born again. He has pushed us into a new sphere of experience from spiritual death into spiritual life. He has made us new creations in Christ Jesus and made us participants of his own eternal life. 
This is an infinitely rich blessing that will follow us all the days of our lives, both the good days and the bad. It is true. For those in Christ, you are born again. And therefore, in light of this blessing of new birth, we are to bless the Lord at all times. And that's the response to being born again. Bless God. Next, we looked at the reasons for being born again. Why do we find ourselves in this eternally blessed state? And the answer that Peter gives here is because of God's great mercy and God's sovereign will. That's what Peter says. He says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. In other words, we're saved not because of anything we've ever done, anything that we are or possess in and of ourselves. We are saved because of everything that God is. That's why we come together to worship and praise His great name. Namely, He is a God of great mercy who looks upon us in our miserable state as rebellious sinners and of His own will, He chooses to redeem us from our hopeless state. So then as Romans 9.16 says, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, that brings us at last to the results of being born again, which Peter lays out for us here at the end of verse 3 into into verse 5. And it is a gloriously rich feast set before us today. You see, Peter knew that when he called on his suffering audience to continually bless God at all times for their spiritual new birth, many of his listeners, and perhaps even us, might be tempted to think this this morning. Well, that's a bit exorbitant. I mean, being born again, that's good. But that's kind of over, right? I mean, that's done. I can bring it up again and thank God for it if you really want me to. But to continually bless God for my new birth? Isn't that a little extreme? I mean, how long do you keep on blessing and praising God for something in the past that's already happened? See, we tend to think of being born again as something that's reserved almost exclusively to our past. Right? We were born again at a moment in time. In the past, we're thankful for it, we're glad for it even, but really, I'm living my everyday life now, facing troubles at every turn, and I don't see how the blessing of being born again is supposed to have much of an impact on my trials in my everyday life now. If you've ever had a thought like that, then Peter's message this morning is for you. Because Peter's going to show us the reason why we ought to continually bless God for our new birth is because our new birth continually affects our everyday life. Though it happens in a moment in time, when it begins in a moment in time, our spiritual new birth has ongoing repercussions both for time and for all eternity. In short, the blessing of being born again provides us with more than enough resources to bless God continually. Revelation 4-5 through makes it very clear that we'll be blessing God for our new birth for all of eternity. Well, here Peter gives us a little taste of that heaven. He gives us just three reasons this morning of being, three results of being born again by which we can continually bless God. We're going to learn that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been born again to an undying hope, to an incorruptible inheritance, and to an unlosable salvation. So why should we continually bless God for being born again? It's because in being born again, We have received from God an undying hope, an incorruptible inheritance, and an unlosable salvation. 
And that is something that should cause you to rejoice even on your hardest of days. That is a reason to bless God at all times. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the bliss of being born again. This is the word of God who makes his face shine upon his servants that he might teach them his statutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rich feast set before us today. Father, we thank you for the new birth. We thank you for what we read in John chapter 3 this morning. That just as the wind blows where it wills, so we recognize that the Spirit blows upon those whom He wills. It's by your great mercy. It's by your sovereign will that you have opened up our eyes to behold the kingdom and to be able to see the kingdom of heaven. And there we see Jesus lifted up on a cross. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You've opened our eyes to see that we have been stung by the poison of sin. And you have caused us to look to Christ and be saved. Father, we thank you for that new birth But Father, remind us today of how that ought to affect our life right now. I thank you for all the things that you have done for us in causing us to be born again. May we be taught it today, Father, by your Spirit, that we might bless you for who you are and what you've done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Peter teaches us about the response and the reasons for being born again, he then lays out for us in glorious terms the results of being born again. That's at the end of verse 3 into verse 5. And Peter shows us first that we are born again to an undying hope. Peter says that God caused us to be born again to what results? He says first, to a living hope. See, when we are born again by the Spirit of God, we enter into a brand new existence of living hope. Before, you see, when we were outside of Christ, when we were alienated from the life of God, we had, as 1 Thessalonians 4.13 puts it, no hope 
Ephesians 2.12 says that we were without hope being without God in this world. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Do you remember that hopeless state? I, for one, can say I do. And I might be in the minority of this, but even though I was saved in an early age, and my memory is since dimmed with time, even though I'm only 36, I still vividly recall how I felt as a young boy before learning of and trusting in Christ. I remember that my life and my future was nothing I looked forward to. I had no confident expectation or positive outlook on the future. From my vantage point, the rest of that day, the rest of that week, and the rest of my life was something to endure. Just a long chain of drudgery and despair to look forward to. Of course, I was young, so I didn't know how to express it in the way I just did to you right now. But I now know from Scripture what that was. It's called hopelessness. The utter despair that cloaks a soul when they don't know and are in Christ. And Jesus, then Jesus came. And I believe the good news. And in that glorious moment, I was pushed from an existence, though I didn't recognize it at that point, I was pushed from an existence of hopelessness to an existence of living hope. For the first time in my life, I had an enduringly positive outlook on the future. As a young boy, I didn't even understand how or why, but I suddenly knew that this life that God had given me was really worth living. As Hebrews 6.11 puts it, I had a full assurance of hope. I understood little more than that at that time, but Peter here fills us in on those details. And what we see is that the moment God pushes us into spiritual life and imparts to us saving faith by which we are to believe in Jesus, He also births us into a living hope. And that word hope is not describing something out there in the future that we're waiting to experience someday It's describing the subjective reality that we're enjoying now and will culminate in some blessed event someday. As believers, God has delivered us from the realm of hopelessness. Now, if we're not careful, of course, we can listen to Satan's lies and just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, we can mess around in a slough of despond. But in Jesus, we don't have to go back. We've been delivered from that doom and gloom, the despair of hopelessness, and we have been given in Jesus a living hope. Isn't that wonderful? One of the reasons why God has caused you to be born again is so that you would have a hope in this world that can never die. Through our new birth, God gives us a confidence, assurance, and a positive outlook on the future that can never be taken away. This is how we're different, or at least ought to be. As believers, we have a conviction that the future holds something far better for us than the present does. We have an undying hope. And how did God accomplish and secure that undying hope? End of verse 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, this is why our hope is living. It's because Jesus is living and we are united to Him, our living Lord. As in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is our living hope. You see, for everyone who is not yet united to Jesus Christ through faith in Him, the best they ever have is a dying hope. Think about that. Without Jesus, 
All your hopes and dreams will die when you die if they don't die far before that. Death kills all hope. Unless, of course, your hope is in Jesus, in which your hope kills death. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Death was swallowed up in victory. And so as believers, we don't have death to look forward to. We have victory. We have eternal life. We have a living hope. As Jesus said in John fourteen nineteen, because I live, you also will live. John 8, 51, Jesus said, you will never see death. You'll pass it by so fast you won't even experience it. John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus said to Martha at the funeral, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? How true it is, as 1 Timothy 1, 1 states, that Jesus Christ is our hope. Do you see how critical this is? Peter is reminding his persecuted audience that in the midst of life's sorrows and trials, we have an undying hope of everlasting, eternal, unbroken life. A living hope that can never die because it's grounded in an ever-living Jesus. When your hope is in the risen Jesus, your hope is unkillable. What's the worst this world can do to you? just kill you and send you straight into the presence of your living hope. When your hope is in the risen Jesus, your hope is unkillable. When our family suffered a loss several years ago, my wife and I struggled with some pretty dark thoughts. And you know the truth that brought us through? It was the knowledge that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That was the truth that we clung to in the conversations that we shared. That was the truth that we look back on and all of a sudden realize dominated most of the songs that we were listening to on a day-in and day-out basis. It was the truth that Jesus Christ had won the victory over sin and death and hell. And on the basis of that, every believer has a living hope, a hope that will never die, that can never be broken, that is absolutely unkillable. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And because we have a risen Savior, we have a living hope. We were born for this, believers. We were born again to a living hope. Second, we were born again to an incorruptible inheritance. That's in verse 4. Paul says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And here Paul continues with the new birth imagery. By reminding us that when we were born again, we were also born into God's family and into all of the benefits that come with that. You see, John, at the beginning of his gospel, makes this very same connection when he writes in John 1, 12-13, But to all who receive Christ, to all who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood of or not of the blood or of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. So our new birth makes us children of God, and if children Romans eight seventeen says then also heirs right heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of the promised inheritance. And like all inheritances, we didn't earn it, did we? We simply received it as a gift from the one who did all the work. Right? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to an inheritance. 
So what is that inheritance? Well, Peter indicates here that it's frankly indescribable. (laughs) If you notice, Peter doesn't actually tell us what that inheritance is in these verses. He can only, it is so grand, he can only tell us what it is not. It is not perishable, he tells us. It is not defiled, and it is not fading. And so first, Peter says here that it is an imperishable inheritance. An imperishable inheritance. That's atharthos in the Greek. It means it will never spoil. It will never break down. It will never be destroyed. It is eternally imperishable. That is amazing. That means our new birth inheritance is something that is completely foreign to our earthly existence when you think about it, right? Everything that we have ever known breaks down in time. I bought an awesome lawnmower eight years ago. It's been two and a half weeks since I mowed my lawn. It has broken down and it's getting fixed, right? Everything we've ever known breaks down with time. Everything we have ever seen eventually spoils or is destroyed. If you doubt this, wait till you age a while and you wake up in the morning. This whole universe, as Romans 8 says, is subject to futility. Even a diamond will crack under pressure. Even solid granite will rot and crumble with time. But the inheritance reserved for us from God is imperishable. It will last forever. It is not perishable. Second, Peter says that it is undefiled. Undefiled, that means unstained or unpolluted. In other words, the inheritance God has for us is without defect and without defilement, which again shows us that the inheritance we have from God is something completely other than anything we have ever experienced here on earth. I don't know how many times my wife has come home from buying groceries only to discover a faulty seal or a broken top or a moldy fruit, and then you watch the news of how people are licking ice cream in Walmart, and it's just disgusting, right? (laughs) Defilement, right? It is a continual reminder of how everything in this life will perish and be defiled eventually. It will perish by some inherent weakness within it, or it will be defiled by some external act upon it, but not so when it comes to the glory that awaits us as children of God. Because we have been born again, the inheritance that is laid up for us is pure and holy. It is the best of the best. The best that there ever was without defilement forever and ever. The inheritance that God has in store for us is unpolluted by sin, sorrow, evil, death, decay, corruption, pain. In short, it is completely untouched by the curse at all. It's perfect. It's pure. It's pristine. That's why it's called paradise as born again children of god this is our inheritance not because we deserve it christ deserves it and we are in him by god's mercy and grace as born again children of god this is our inheritance it is not perishing it is not defiled and the third truth and the third truth that peter reminds us of our inheritance is that it is unfading in other words it never decays it never diminishes can you imagine that because I was thinking about it this week. Have you ever noticed how after you experience something new, the initial thrill of experience it, experiencing it eventually fades away? I was joking. I was going to make this illustration of Char when she first met me, but no. Maybe it's a new television, right? Or discovering a new favorite food or something like that, right? On the first day, you're thinking, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe how good this is, right? Second day, you're thinking, wow, this is really good. Third day, you're thinking, yeah, it's pretty good. Fourth day, 
it's all right. right? Over time, the joy and the thrill of everything you will ever face in this life will fade away. Well, here Peter tells us that the inheritance that is waiting for us as children of God possesses a permanent and ever-growing beauty to it and an undiminishing thrill that will increase and abound yet more and more for all and all eternity. That is unreal. The things that God has in store for us will be eternally breathtaking, eternally new. There is no such thing as boredom in the presence of God and of the new heavens and new earth in which He's creating for us someday. Maybe you thought, man, eternity is a long time, right? It's bound to get boring, right? The answer is no. Our inheritance is so amazing, so infinitely glorious, it will blow us away for all of eternity. We'll never get used to it. Chapter 5, verse 4 says it is unfading glory. This is why I say that our inheritance as, as uh, born-again children of God is indescribable. It's because Peter can only tell us what our inheritance is not. It's not perishable. It's not defiled. It's not fading. That's how wonderful it is beyond description. It's exactly what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 2.9 where he says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Our inheritance as born-again children of God is beyond imagining, beyond description. It is, in short, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, as Ephesians 1.3 says. Our inheritance is quite simply, if you want to put it this way, God Himself. And every blessing and every pleasure that radiates out of His person. Lamentations 3.24 states this, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. He's our living hope. Because of our new birth, we inherit God. God Himself. What a tremendous thought. Revelation pictures this as the veil is torn aside and you see in the very last chapter of the Bible that we see His face. The one who causes sinful man to drop dead. We will dwell with Him for eternity in all of His glory and wonder. That's a tremendous thought. And that's what Peter wants these believers to remember in the midst of all of their suffering. That this world is not all there is. There's there's so much more. That they've been born again to an eternal inheritance that is indescribable, an inheritance that is so glorious that the sufferings of this present time can't even be compared to it, as Romans 8.18 says. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You say light? Yes, compared to the weight of the glory to come. So what do we need to remember in order to glorify God in the midst of all of life's difficulties? We need to remember that according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, first to an undying hope and second to an incorruptible inheritance. Which, by the way, end of verse 4 says this, it's kept in heaven for who? You. You. Literally, to be guarded. It's being reserved in heaven for you. It doesn't generically say it's kept in heaven for people. Hopefully you make it into that. It's reserved in heaven for you. Literally, 
For you, heaven, which, as Jesus says in Matthew 6.20, is the place where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves cannot break in or steal, right? Your indescribably glorious inheritance is being reserved for you in the place, safest place there ever has been or ever will be, heaven itself under the watchful eye of God himself. As the old hymnist once penned, I have a heritage of joy that yet I cannot see, but he who bled to make it mine is keeping it for me. We've been born again, brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been born again to a living hope. We've been born again to an indescribable inheritance. And we have been born again next to an unlosable salvation. Verse 5, which should be a sermon in and of itself. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Isn't that beautiful? Not only is this wonderful inheritance being kept for you, but you are being kept for it. I mean, you are being preserved by God for an inheritance that is reserved by God. And that really is the other half of the coin when you think about it, right? If you're going to go on a date to a restaurant... You can call ahead and you can make a reservation, but that reservation is only as good as you actually making it there. And sadly, that is exactly the fear that many believers are crippled by. They're not worried whether God has a wonderful inheritance planned out for somebody. They doubt whether it's for them and whether they will make it there. They're worried that they'll somehow mess it all up and lose it all. And so Peter reminds us that those of us who have been born again are being guarded. We're being kept. We're being preserved unto glory. How? First and foremost, by God's power. We have an unlosable salvation because those who are truly saved and born again are being guarded by God's power. And if God is for us, as Romans 8.31 says, who can be against us? We have an unlosable salvation. This is what Jesus said in John 10.28-29. I give them eternal life. How long does eternal life last? Forever, right? I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father am one. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39 says. Nothing. That's why Jude 24 exclaims, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who began a good work in you will finish it. See, God is not only keeping your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, God is keeping you. Peter knew that, did he not? Oh, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail when you have turned again strengthen your brothers. That's the only difference between Peter and Judas. I've prayed for you. God's not only keeping your inheritance, God's keeping you. We've been born again. We have been born again, are being guarded by God's power. How? Listen to this. This is awesome. You're being guarded by God's power 
through faith. (laughs) Through faith. This is our part in it. In other words, God supernaturally preserves those who are born again. How? Through supernaturally enduring faith. Mark it. We are preserved by God's power through faith, not apart from it. You are saved through faith and you are kept through faith. That is why it is wrong for people to claim that someone can be saved even if they don't believe. Forget it. If a person does not have an enduring faith that demonstrates God's preserving supernatural power, they don't have salvation. They never did. Because faith is not your ability to hold on to God. Saving faith is God's ability to hold on to you. That's how it works. Because we're being preserved, we're being guarded by God's power. How? Through faith. Through faith. Scripture is very clear on this. Throughout the book of Hebrews, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For those who shrink back are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what does it mean? If a person turns their back on holding on to God in faith, it means that God was never holding on to them. For you see, those who are truly born again are being guarded by God's power through faith. What a reminder for us that saving faith is not natural. Don't praise yourself because you believed. It is supernatural. It is God's power at work in our faith. What a realization, what a truth, that faith is not ultimately us holding on to God, it is God holding on to us. And the means by which God holds on to us by His unbreakable power is by giving us an unbreakable faith that, by the way, can endure every trial and hardship that comes your way. And that's why Peter's reminding those in his audience of this truth so that when the question is asked who are they who have an undying hope and incorruptible inheritance and an unlosable salvation in jesus christ we can say well they are those who have been chosen elect born again by god's great mercy and sovereign will and we can say in the exact same breath they are those who believe because those two ideas are not contradictory they are complementary we are being guarded by god's power through faith finally end of verse five for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what time is that? <laughs> Verse 7 through 9 shows us it is the time of Christ's return. It is the moment when Jesus returns to this earth that will mark the final great realization of our hope, the coming into our, of our inheritance, and the final fulfillment of this salvation. And this hope, this inheritance, this salvation, Peter tells us, is ready to be revealed. Indeed, as Romans 13.11 teaches, it is nearer now than when you first believed. This living hope, this incredible inheritance, and this unshakable salvation which you have been born again into is at hand. This is the results of being born again. I don't have any reason to be thankful this morning. I hope you walk out with a different mindset than what you walked in today. Because in Christ Jesus, by God's great mercy and will, we have a living hope and incredible inheritance and an unshakable salvation. So what should be our response? What should be our response? Two suggestions. First, bless the Lord. (laughs) Right? That is how Peter began this section back in verse 3. Is a call to worship a bad application? I don't think so, because that's exactly what we see here in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to His great mercy, He's caused you to be born again to this undying hope, this incorruptible inheritance, and this unlosable salvation. Therefore, bless the Lord. 
His praise ought to be continually on your mouth. No matter whether your day is good or bad, you have entered that day and you have gone through that day as someone who has been born again from above. Let his praise be in your mouth. If you're not a musical person, I want to encourage you to work on it. Listen to worship music throughout the day. Train your heart and your mind to sing the songs of the righteous in response to your new birth. Just like the hymnist wrote, Ransomed, sealed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise to sing? Or in another place, when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. The righteous have always been a singing people. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord in response to your new birth. If you're not a musical person, work on it. If you're not a thankful person, work on that too. Conviction I was thinking of this week is during mealtime, thank God for more than just the meal. And when it comes to your quiet times of prayer, bless him for who for him who bless him who has caused you to be born again. Because Praise befits the upright, those who have been made righteous in Christ. So first, in light of being born again to an undying hope, incorruptible inheritance, and unlosable salvation, bless the Lord. Second suggestion, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. I mean, how terrible would it be to think, wow, God has given me new life so I can warm the pews. God has given me this new life so I can keep it to myself. No. In thinking about how we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, my mind immediately went to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. In that passage, Paul has just gotten done describing the very things that Peter describes in summary form here. Having a living hope, an incorruptible inheritance, and an unlosable salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul finishes that whole discussion in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 by saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. Knowing that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that there is an indescribable salvation inheritance like this waiting for us gives us a living hope, doesn't it? It keeps us going and it keeps us motivated to loving and serving the Lord. For one day it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Therefore, bless the Lord and serve the Lord. For according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. This is the bliss of being born again and the world needs to see it from us. And this is the word of God from 1 Peter 1, 3-5, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until our salvation and our Savior is at last revealed. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for bringing us right back to the root of it all. Right back to who we are That we can forget all the labels. We can forget all the names, both good and bad. 
We can forget all the reviling and all the honors. We can forget all the good days and all the bad. At the heart of it all, we stand before You as those who have been born again to all these wonderful things. And we know it comes from Your heart. You are a God of great mercy. You are a God that set Your love upon us. And we don't deserve it. But we ought to thank You for it. So give us grace this week, Father, to sing the new songs of salvation and to sprinkle our prayers with thanksgiving as we recall what an eternal wonder it is and will be forever to be counted among those who have been born again to a living hope, to an indescribable salvation, an inheritance and an unlosable salvation. Father, we thank You so much for the gifts You've given us in Christ. Help us to show the world the joy that comes through knowing Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.